Welcome to The Verge Podcast, where we bring together groundbreakers and industry disruptors from various corners of the virtual world to ponder the future of technology innovation. I'm your host, Steve Wyhan with Divergent, and today I'm with Eric Gombrich, CEO of Ticket Health. Eric has over 30 years of experience in the healthcare information technology and medical device industries, having led organizations in their expansion efforts across the U.S., Canada, and around the world. As the CEO of Ticket Health, he leads the organization's efforts to deploy digitally empathetic tools to capture patient-reported data. Eric, welcome to the show. Steve, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. So to set the stage, uh, today we're going to talk about how some organizations are rethinking the way that they collect information from individuals. During the discussion, we'll talk about the flaws in traditional surveying processes and how organizations can more effectively and accurately collect important information from individuals. So Eric, let's hop right into it. Can you first provide some background on the history of patient-reported data and some of the challenges that organizations face when using traditional data collection tools? Yeah, happy happy to do so. Um, I think in our case, because there's a long history on patient-reported data, it goes all the way back to probably the very first conversation that uh, a patient ever had with a, a physician and the physician asking the patient questions. Uh, but in our case, um, it, it goes back to the co-founder of the business, Dr. Sandy Whitehouse. Um, uh, Sandy, as she likes to be referred to, uh, is a pediatrician and a youth health expert. Um, she actually ran the emergency department at the British Columbia Children's Hospital in Vancouver for a number of years, um, as well as uh, serving as a practicing uh, pediatrician for, for decades. And she started to realize a number of years ago, um, probably close to 20 years ago now, that she was having some real challenges in getting information from patients and, and communicating with them. And as a result of that, um, she actually started doing some research and putting herself back into school to get a, a, to get a master's in um, communication because she wanted to better understand the science and the psychology of what happens in the communication process. And as a, a, an extension of that, she ended up um, ideating uh, an approach to collecting data, uh, which has turned out to be quite novel and, and revolutionary. And after working with researchers around the world to test it, um, we've demonstrated that it has a profound effect on um, improving outcomes for patients and improving the efficiency for the organization as they try to collect this data from patients. And we've coined the, uh, the, the, the branding around it as digital empathy. Uh, ostensibly, what it is is the ability to um, recognize, acknowledge, and address the fact that virtually every patient, uh, a physician or a nurse or, or an administrator comes in contact with, has their own story, their own experience, their own culture, their own languages, etc. And approaching them to request information, to try to capture information um, in a way that is empathetic to that reality uh, is a much better way of capturing the data than trying to assume a one size fits all and just using, for example, a standardized survey for all patients. Um, and as I, as I indicated, we've been uh, validating this around the world, uh, particularly in Australia, the U.S. and Canada. Uh, Dr. Whitehouse comes from Australia originally, but she's been in North America for the better part of 30 years. 
Um, and we've demonstrated that this approach can improve the productivity of an organization upwards of 200% in their data collection efforts, um, while also improving the quality of the data that's being captured, which is critical when you start to consider things like using um, screening tools, assessments, etc., and trying to identify patients that may, for example, be suffering from mental health, health issues or having social determinant issues like food insecurities or things like that. Um, the sensitivity and the specificity are dramatically increased when you take this digitally empathetic approach to the process. That's really interesting. And thanks for the background. I've heard quite a bit about the importance of empathy in healthcare and, and the application of that concept into digital tools seems like it can have a really big impact on the way care is delivered. Can you talk more about some specific examples of, say, factors that influence the way individuals react to or respond to questions? Yeah, uh, happy to do that. And and I think, you know, in our experience of, of explaining this to, to various audiences, um, it's one of those very quick light bulb moments. Um, and so let me let me give you an example. Um, if a physician walks into the exam room and let's say there's a I am making this up, it doesn't really matter. But let's say there's a 12 year old there sitting next to their parent. And in the course of the, um, the clinical encounter, um, the physician needs to start asking questions like, do you drink alcohol? Do you vape? Do you smoke marijuana? Um, I think as parents, we can all immediately recognize the likelihood that the child is going to say no is <laughs> very, very high. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the honest answer. And this is an example of, of what Dr. Whitehouse um, you know, started to realize is that uh, there's a clinical obligation to ask these questions as part of the clinical process. Um, and in fact, there may be um, you know, licensing type of things and reimbursement type of things asking specific questions. And so the, the physician or perhaps a nurse or um, some other assistant in the course of the encounter to be able to ensure that they can get reimbursed. We'll just ask these questions, but there's absolutely no consideration for, are we asking the question in a way that's going to get us actual accurate data? And when you don't consider that, and then all of a sudden you start to get this data, let's presume it's inaccurate. Um, a number of things start to happen. One is the clinician may actually be making decisions based on poor data, which obviously is is probably the most the most significant because it can have direct impact on clinical outcomes. Um, but most physicians realize, yeah, the likelihood of this information being accurate is minimized, so they to totally disregard the information anyways. Um, and so, well, then why are we bothering to ask the question? But then the second thing is that the organization is using the data for statistical reasons. Let's say you're a primary care clinic and you're asking these questions and you're trying to determine, should we run a smoking cessation program? Um, the answer may be, no, we don't really need it because all of our patients say they don't smoke. Well, but that's not real. That's not the honest answer. And so you're missing operational opportunities here that start to send things off the you know, best path, if you will, from a strategic perspective. Um, examples of this, you know, they go further. When you verbally have somebody, again, a physician, um, a nurse practitioner, could be a teacher or a counselor or whatever the case is, asking these questions that might come out of a validated tool. For example, um, there, there's a tool called the PHQ-2, um, also PHQ-9. These are generally available in most electronic health records. Uh, these are validated tools. They were originally developed by Pfizer Corporation and put into the open space, uh, open source um, realm. And they are used to very quickly identify whether or not a patient has any mental health 
issues or depression, anxiety. Uh, the PHQ-2 is simply two questions. Um, however, the way that the organizations implement these, um, th- this tool and, and other tools like them vary. For example, um, some organizations may hand the patient the clipboard with a piece of paper and they, they respond to it on paper. Um, that then requires somebody to type the information into the electronic, electronic health record or scan it into the record, which oftentimes doesn't happen before the encounter. So the practice is able to check the box, if you will, that they did the mental health screening so that they can get reimbursed accordingly for the visit. But the answers are not necessarily taken into account when the physician walks into the exam room because the physician has not seen the responses yet. And so there's a missed opportunity to identify that this patient may need some counseling or additional um, follow-up. And so as we move to outcomes-based models, um, value-based remuneration models, um, the efficiency of getting this information before and or during the encounter becomes that much more important so that the physician can be more efficient um, in driving proper outcomes. The other scenario is that in the exam itself, again, the physician or the nurse practitioner may actually ask the questions of the patient because those questions have actually been embedded into the electronic health health record. So they are asking these questions and entering the responses um, in real time during the encounter. The challenge that we've seen in that is the questions are not asked verbatim. They tend to be manipulated both in tone and perhaps even in um, uh, syntax uh, by the person doing the interviewing. So here's an example. Um, the, the actual objective question in the assessment might be, uh, have you experienced any depression in the last two weeks? A nurse or a physician asking that question may, in fact, modify that slightly to be, you're not feeling any depression, are you? or you haven't felt depressed in the last two weeks, have you? You can hear that there's a bias imposed in the way I'm asking the question versus what the objective validated question is. And when those biases get introduced, the data becomes skewed. Um, I know what you want to hear. And so just to be a good patient, I will respond, no, of course not. I've not had any depression, but that's not necessarily the honest truth. Um, And so we see all of these types of things in the way that these surveys are being applied. Um, and they, again, create not only quality of data issues, which start to skew outcomes and prevent efficient care delivery, um, but it's not efficient. Why have the physician or the nurse spend the time asking these two questions when you could do it even before the patient arrives at the visit um, and have the data in the electronic health record and perhaps even be flagging for the physician that the individual has scored a certain way? Um, and so these are some of the things that all come up in the, in the process of applying digital empathy. Yeah, so that that helps, you know, to hear those more specific examples and and you know, you talking about how having inaccurate or incomplete data, you know, could could really impact patient outcomes and clinical care, you know, really makes um, you know, the importance of collecting good information profound. Um and then, you know, part of what you were saying there reminds me of an, an old adage that that I have used um, in my EHR days is, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You know, if, if the data that you're collecting, you know, using what you know, EHRs as an example, um, which have I've heard them be referred to as, as you know, big data collection tools, um, if, if the information you're capturing is, is uh, inaccurate, um, your reporting capabilities and ability, you know, really to, to improve outcomes, reduce costs, et cetera. 
um, become rapidly diminished. Um, I think that's absolutely right, Steve. Um, I, I, and, 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 it, and it gets it, it gets even more complex when you really consider, for example, just the question itself can be stigmatizing and and problematic. So uh, an example of this is, you know, how many of us have done surveys? It, it could be after, you know, purchasing something um, not, not even related to healthcare, where the first couple questions may be related to things like, um, what's my family income? What's my age? What's my gender? Uh, things along those lines. Um, these are questions that can be really stigmatizing and people can get very nervous about answering these questions. And so where, where and when you ask those questions in the context of, let's say, a satisfaction survey is critical. And we will lean in with our clients and ask the question, well, why, why do you want that information? And oftentimes the response is that it's for statistical reasons. Well, if that's the case, why make them the first couple questions you ask which immediately cause the person you're asking the questions to go on the defensive subconsciously. You know, why do you want to know what my gender is? If I'm not very clearly binary in, in my response, I immediately start to have biochemical responses that are triggered that cause me to get on the defensive. And so every other question you start to ask me, um, I'm going to be very, very guarded in the way I'm providing the information, which is entirely the opposite of what we want in healthcare. We want open, honest information so we can best serve the patients. And so asking these type of questions in the wrong way at the wrong time in the flow of, of the data collection process can really upset things and, and cause problems. And this is stuff that's happening day in and day out, and it's un, unrecognized by most institutions as they try to communicate with patients. That, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So Eric, I want to shift gears a bit and, and loop back on something that you had mentioned earlier about the increased levels of productivity when you apply these digitally empathetic tools. Can you expand a bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, uh, the research we've done in in working with clients and validating the the application of this have demonstrated some um, pretty interesting effects. Um, I think one of the best is uh, we did some work with um, uh, the University of California um, in, in and around San Francisco and and some clinics there. And what we did is we took the HCAP survey and we applied digital empathy to it. Now, to be clear, we're not a um, a, a certified uh, HCAP surveying company. But by just applying the principles of digital empathy um, to, uh, to the HCAP, we were able to demonstrate an 80% increase in the response rates. And that's critical because in the case of the HCAPs, like many other surveys, um, the organizations have to meet a certain threshold of responses. Um, and another example might be even, again, like the PHQ-2. If you have to get the PHQ done um, or completed by um, the, the clinician or the patient to complete an encounter and be able to bill for it, um, the effort to get that completed uh, becomes a, a burden on the organization. And when we see an 80% increase in the um, response rates uh, to, to these assessments or questionnaires, um, that reduces the burden on the organization to have to chase patients to get this information information. Um, another example is directly related to the quality of the data that we're actually capturing. Um, when you're using some of these tools for screening purposes, and I'll give an example of this in a moment, um, if you have poor specificity in that process, um, you're 
in uh, inadvertently identifying patients that may, may need follow-up who don't actually need it. Um, and so particularly when you get into the realms of mental health um, and, and wellness, uh, where we have such a limited number of resources available to support patients, um, you know, we want to have really high specificity in who we are, are providing those resources to. Uh, and so having higher quality, quality data results in uh, the greater specificity in this regard. Um, and so, you know, we, we've been doing a project uh, for a couple of years now with um, uh, the King County School District uh, in the Seattle area, and they've deployed a, a screening tool and assessment that was developed uh, in partnership with us and the Seattle Children's Research Institute. Um, they've deployed this into all 45 schools in and around uh, middle and high schools in and around the Puget Sound area. And we were able to identify a number of kids that were ideating suicide that the schools had not been able to identify previously. Um, and we also were able to, with greater specificity, identify the kids that needed help. Um, and that has allowed King County and the counselors in the schools to be much more effective um, in providing supportive services. Uh, in those areas and, and helping these kids. Um, and I think, you know, in the, in the context of COVID and, and the increasing anxiety and depression, not just amongst youth, but about everybody uh, that we're all experiencing, this is becoming more and more uh, of an issue. That's fantastic. And, and hearing there that, you know, some, some of the use cases outside of healthcare, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, really interesting. I want to, you know, one, one thing you mentioned there was COVID. And, and I think uh, for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, I haven't asked a question about COVID. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to shift into that topic. Uh, so has Ticket Health helped organizations with their response to COVID? I know you mentioned, you know, in, in um, the school districts there is, is, you know, one potential application, but can you expand more on, you know, how, how you've helped organizations either at the onset of, of the pandemic or as part of the recovery process? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's early days on this. And uh, I don't, I don't know that what we're doing is, is specifically related to the virus as much as it, as it is that it was catalyzed by the, by the pandemic. And so, for example, um, as, as schools move to virtual um, we started having conversations with a number of our existing clients and those that, that we've been talking to about um, using Ticket in their school-based health centers, the clinics that are in the schools, um, to better screen the kids while they are remote. You know, they're at home working from a distance uh, around mental health and anxiety. And that's resulted in us creating um, several what we call tools, um, again, assessments, questionnaires, surveys, et cetera, um, that are doing things like assessing students, um, not only for their mental health um, status, but the family entirely uh, as it pertains to social determinant issues. And are the kids ready to come back to school as the school started to open? And we've been doing some pilot projects around that. Um, and it's it, it's pretty interesting to see that, again, because people lean into the way that these, these assessments or questionnaires are designed, uh, the organizations are starting to get more data from the families um, and the students, even over telemedicine or, you know, it, Tele teleeducation, if you want to think of it that way. Um, we're also involved in a project 
uh, up here in Canada, um, where integrating with a number of other partners, um, some EMR vendors, and uh, I would refer to them as interface interface engine or integration type technologies. Um, we're going to be at the forefront of capturing data from populations here in Canada to prioritize uh, serology testing as well as vaccination. Um, so, for example, being able to assess, uh, you know, perhaps it's uh, a student uh, to get some information about who is in their household um, on a routine basis and where they work will help us identify that perhaps there's somebody in that family that is working in a long-term care or assisted living facility. And by virtue of that, we may want to prioritize the serology testing and the vaccinations um, for that family. And that all starts with just capturing some general data, perhaps from the, uh, the student um, in the process. But then it informs the health system um, on what's going in in that household and how to prioritize some of these services. So, so those are some of the things that we're working on. OK, great. Thanks. So um, I want to talk a little bit more about the technology um, before mm-hmm. we start to wrap things up. So can you explain a little bit about how you know the platform works and specifically what the integration capabilities are with third-party systems like CRMs or electronic health records? Sure, sure. Happy to do that. Uh, so uh, tick, Ticket, the name of the product um, or the solution is a, a cloud-based SaaS offering. Um, it's entirely HIPAA compliant. We're actually going through SOC 2 type 2 um, audits right now, uh, but we're compliant in uh, the U.S., of course, with HIPAA. We're also compliant with something that many of your listeners may not be familiar with called FERPA, uh, which is uh, akin to HIPAA, but in the education sector. Uh, and again, part of the reason for that is one of the really interesting um, markets, if you will, that we're seeing significant growth in is the intersection of healthcare with education, as you've heard me allude to, um, where uh, a federally qualified health center may actually go in and run the clinic in the school, or they may go in and screen the entire population, or it might be a health system that is running the school-based health center. Um, which is a clinic embedded in the school. Um, so we, we, we're kind of uh, living at the intersection of healthcare and education as they come together. So the, the solution is maintained um, on U.S. soil. All the data is kept in the U.S. Um, similarly, in Canada, all of the data captured in Canada is kept in Canada. And again, in Australia, the same thing. Um, but it is a SaaS offering. Um, it, the, the solution includes a library of various, uh, again, tools. Uh, for different use cases. Again, we've talked significantly about, for example, the PHQ-2, uh, but we have roughly 50 different tools for different scenarios, um, everything from mental health screening to satisfaction surveys uh, to general onboarding and education um, of people. Um, and the the organizations will choose which of these tools that they, you know, they want to employ uh, for whatever um, operational purpose they have or clinical purpose they have. It also includes what we call the population management module, which is the, um, if you want to think of it this way, is the dashboard um, or the the back end, if you will, that uh, physicians, nurses, administrators, etc., will use um, to administer the the various tools. Um, you know, basically send a survey uh, to a patient, which can be done um, through a secure link through SMS, email, etc. Um, it's a responsive design, so it runs on any device and on any OS. 
It is a web-based app. Um, they can also look at the data uh, that's coming back, either at an individual patient level or they can look at it in aggregate for statistical um, and business intelligence purposes. Uh, but as you asked about, Steve, we also have a number of APIs that allow us to integrate directly into the EMRs or the EHRs, uh, CRM systems, uh, learning management systems, etc. cetera. Uh, we support HL7, uh, Fire. Um, we've done a number of proprietary uh, interfaces through our uh, open API that we have uh, to, again, things like uh, homegrown CRM systems and whatnot. So organizations may choose not to use the population management module and just take the discrete data right into the EMR uh, and manage everything there. Um, in some cases, they just want to get a PDF uh, image of the survey response, but they may actually want to get any of the flags because we can do scoring and alerting from from uh, ticket. So let's say, for example, um, we send out uh, uh, an assessment to um, you know a population, um, you know all diabetics, for example, or all all fifth graders, or whatever the case may be. Um, the system can not only get the data back, but if in fact one of the respondents um, were to have some indication that something is critically um, and significantly uh, alarming. For example, they're ideating suicide or uh, they're finding that their their, um, blood sugar is spiking or whatever the case is. Um, We can not only flag that information, but we can start alerting people through uh, an escalating level of alerts uh, so that people people, um, on the clinical side of things are able to engage with those those individuals much more um, effectively. But we can send those flags and alerts directly to the EMR, so all that flag and alerting is happening from the EMR itself rather than having to have people um, uh, use ticket uh, directly from a, from a PMM perspective. And we also support single sign-on and things along those lines. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of flexibility there in, in how uh, the tool could be deployed and integrated with other systems. And I, I know I'm really interested to see you know, the progression of this as the world shifts from um, you know, more of a transactional healthcare system to a uh, customer-oriented um, environment really focused on, on driving the, you know, those triple aim outcomes of um, reducing costs and increasing quality and, and so on. So, you know, Eric, let's, let's wrap up there. You know, I know that I and our listeners really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Thank you for being with us today. No, it's been it's been a real pleasure. And I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, as organizations move into, I'll say, the new world order, particularly in healthcare, and realize that consumers have a, a much more um, significant role to play in their own care and choice. Um, I think organizations are realizing that they need to meet the clients or the, or the patients where they are. And that meet, includes recognizing that we're not all the same. Um, and that's the essence of digital empathy is, is approaching people based on um, where they are um, in an empathetic fashion. And, and uh, we're really excited about the future. So I appreciate you having me on the, on the podcast. Absolutely. You're, you're welcome anytime. Thanks.